In our moral and social philosophy classes, which I teach at Harriet Watt University, I sometimes ask the students this. Supposing I was to come into the classroom and say to you, I don't believe human life has any value. How would you counter that? What response would you make? Unless you believe in God, there isn't really any response to that. It's just a matter of personal opinion or not, whether human life has any value to you or to others. If we're simply here by accident, if we came from nothing and then somehow bacteria and genes appeared and through random chance mutations and natural selection, here we are and then we go to nothing, then there is no point to human life, no overall point in any case. And uh, therefore, morality itself cannot survive because if there's no purpose, there's no value, and if there's no value, then there's no good or bad. But secondly, supposing we imagine something different, supposing we imagine that eternity does exist, so we have this life on earth, and then there's eternity, but eternity doesn't re have any connection with this life. So here's this life, 70, 80, 90 years long, say, and then there's eternity, which is infinitely long, and the two never meet. Then we might conclude that this life is only finite, eternity is infinite, therefore this life, its value is vanishingly small because what's a finite time, 70, 80, 90 years, compared with eternity? Now if that's our view, and it is the view of some people, it's not the view of anyone in this church, I hope, but if it is the view, our view, then we'll think that this life is of no importance compared with eternity afterwards. It would be far easier to devalue human life on earth if you hold that view than it would be if I explained the third view, if your third view is different. And this is the third view, that eternity exists and it intersects with this world. Eternity relates to this world, has even touched this world. If that is the case, then life on earth is of very great value. It's given value because eternal life touches this life. Now the Old Testament, before the time of Christ, told us that God was drawing near to this world, eternity was drawing near to time, and God spoke through the ancient prophets. Then he sent various prophets to this world as he drew near to us. But he promised that one day he would not send a prophet that he would come himself in our midst, that eternity really would come into time, not just drawing near to us, but actually coming into our midst. And that's prophesied throughout the Old Testament scriptures where God says, I will come myself to visit and redeem my people. And so from time to time, we see glimpses from earth into heaven. Not often, but we do. And that's because there was one great visitation where heaven and earth were opened to one another. One great visitation in Christ, the Word, through whom all things were created, became flesh and dwelt among us. We do get glimpses these days as 
too, in my former congregation. I was visiting my former congregation last Sunday, taking services there. We had one of our elders, called George, and George was playing bowls one day on the bowling green with his fellow bowlers, and he fell over. And the, his fellow bowlers came and said, what's the matter, George? And he said, look, there's Jesus in heaven. What happened next, ladies and gentlemen? Well, three or four days later, I conducted his funeral service. He'd had a heart attack. And how did I know that that's what he said to the bowlers? Because they were at the funeral. And after the funeral service was over, they came to me as a group and told me what had happened on the bowling green. There he was, on earth. But at the zero point of this earth, where the y-axis meets the x-axis, if the x-axis is this earth, and the y-axis is a greater dimension, at that zero point, he saw for a moment this world, the bowling green, and he saw into heaven. Now, the last few Sunday evenings, I've been uh, leading Bible studies of the first letter of John in, in another part of this city. And after I did this, a, a nurse who was attending my Bible studies came to my wife afterwards and said that one of the greatest moments in her nursing experience was nursing a man who was blind and dying. And just as he was dying, this man had been blind, I think, for many years, maybe all his life, just as he was dying, he sat right up in bed, seemed to be full of strength, and he said, look, there is heaven. And he left us. I'm reminded of uh, the words of Jesus, that I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And he who believes in me shall never die. You see, those who were watching these two people at their death saw them die. But for those two people, and I pray it may be true for all of us when we leave this world, they didn't actually experience death. They went from this life into the next life. He who believes in me shall never die, Jesus said. And so there we get occasionally in this world glimpses into heaven where heaven intersects this world. But the great meeting of heaven and earth in the midst of history was in Jesus Christ. The word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. Now let's think of this verse here in Luke 2.19 in the midst of the Christmas story, Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. She was the first Christian theologian. A theologian is someone who hears the word of God and ponders it, thinks about it. Now here's Mary, she's heard the word of God and she's pondering its meaning. So she's a theologian. The first in the Christian church. And what things did she ponder? Well, she pondered the things that have inspired the carols. She pondered the ancient Jewish scriptures. The visit of the angel to her nine months before to tell her she was to have a child who would be the saviour of the world. The journey to Bethlehem. The birth in a manger. The choir of angels who met the shepherds 
the visit to the manger of the shepherds and later the visit of the wise men. And as you read these stories and sing the carols that are around these stories, there's a thread of awe and wonder throughout the whole story. Like the great mystery and wonder of why there is a universe. Have you ever wondered that? I jokingly ask our students that. Why is there a universe? You ever wondered that? Why is there something and not nothing? It's a great mystery, but there is. It exists, doesn't it? Here it is, and here we are. These are awesome mysteries to be pondered. And the carols and the readings at Christmas are, as it were, windows into heaven. And we must pray that as people sing these carols, maybe non-Christian people will sing them, somehow the Lord will bridge that gap between heaven and earth and speak to them through these wonderful tunes and wonderful words taken from the scriptures themselves. And the truth that we encounter as we ponder these things is not a truth which lies on the surface. In all areas of knowledge to discern things we need to ponder them and contemplate. Now most of the history of this world is the history of battles, treaties, kings, presidents, social changes, prime ministers, developments of science and technology. But there are certain events that are beyond the scope of science and history and they are the, about the, the times, if that's the right word, they are when eternity meets time. And they are beyond the research of science and history. The first one is actually the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. My brother gave me several, many years ago now, a book written by a uh, Nobel Prize winner in physics, and the book was called The First Three Minutes. And he, the, the writer, Stephen Weinberg, claimed to be able to discern what had happened in the first three minutes of the existence of this universe. But one thing he couldn't do, he could go right back to the first few seconds, I'm not saying he's right, he may have been, he could go back to the first few seconds, but he couldn't go back to the beginning itself. Because at the beginning itself there is no space, there is no time, there, is no, there are no laws of science, there are no laws of physics. It's an event which lies beyond the scope of science and history. And then there's the end of all things, whereas our reading tells us the sky is rolled up like a garment. These stars, these billions of stars and galaxies which are shining now will not shine forever. The universe is not infinite. It will shine for a long time, but not forever. So it must have been lit at one point. Someone must have lit it, not with a temporary light, but an eternal light. An eternal light must lie behind this universe in which we live. So there's the beginning, and there's the end, which are beyond science and history. But also there's the middle, this is what is this service is about tonight. The middle of history. When the creator and the judge comes to visit his creation. To take our sins and pains to himself and redeem us, his people. To begin a new creation. Not another creation made out of nothing, but a creation made out of the old. And so God does that in Christ. He comes into the midst of history 
and that resurrection of Christ which is as it were the beginning of the new creation then spreads into all the world spreads back in time to the beginning of time and forward in time to the end of time and that middle part of history is also beyond science and historical investigation for he was conceived by the Holy Spirit born of the Virgin Mary he belonged to this world he had a mother like we all had mothers and ancestors and yet his human life could not be described simply in terms of this world its history and biology he was conceived by the Holy Spirit something from God from eternity had come into time now the one who is the source of this universe it seems reasonable to me to believe he cannot be less than what is in the universe and you and I are in the universe and we're personal human beings so he can't be less than personal and you and I know something however imperfectly of the meaning of the word love so he who cannot be less than us must be very great love and love cannot remain at a distance love has to come to the needy one even if the need of the needy one is his own fault and so that is the great love of God that he comes into the place where people are suffering and where the suffering is the fault of the human race through our own free will we have brought suffering to this world now let's this verse from the Christmas story Luke 2, 13 and 14 suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men on whom his favour rests the marvellous worship of the angels when God breaks into human history and it's not the first time the angels have been rejoicing Job 38 verse 7 the oldest book in the Bible the book of Job not the first book in the Bible but the oldest book in the Bible Job 38 verse 7 while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy what was happening? well it was the beginning of all things that first time when heaven and earth met at the creation Nehemiah 9.6 You alone are the Lord You made the heavens even the highest heavens and all their starry host the earth and all that is in it You gave life to everything and the multitudes of heaven the angels worship you What else makes the angels rejoice? Well Luke 15.7 says I tell you in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven that is with the angels over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent then there was the wise men now who were they? well we think they were the scientists of that age the magi what were they looking for? well Matthew 2 verse 2 we read they asked where is the one who has been born king of the Jews we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him like the angels they were contemplating the stars that's what they did in ancient Persia from where they probably came like astronomers today they worship they wonder who has created it all 
as I was uh, walking on the, a golf course at night many years ago and I was pondering and the meaning of all the stars, I could see them above me, it suddenly occurred to me what I've already said this evening, which is very obvious, if the stars aren't burning forever, someone must have lit them. You know, the, the astronomers tell us, I'm not saying they're right, but they tell us that if the universe was any smaller than it is now, there would be no planets, there could be no planets, and therefore no planet Earth, and therefore no Charlotte Chapel on Sunday evening service on the 5th of December either. The stars tell us, you see, that the Creator exists, but we only find Him in worship and repentance. We don't find Him through a telescope. Imagine the joy of the true scientist when he finds the answer to his quest. Matthew 2, 11 and 10 when the wise men saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they had come to the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. That's the only way of knowing God is worship. You can't find him in a laboratory or in a telescope. Let's think a bit about time now. We've already read this verse earlier in the service, Galatians 4.4 4, When the time had fully come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Now, in a month's time, or under a month from now, we'll be celebrating the end of this year and the beginning of a new year. We're aware of time moving and passing each moment we say goodbye to the previous moment forever. From birth to death, we are creatures of time. We move in space, but we cannot travel forward or backward in time. You can go from here to Glasgow, or here to America, or here to India. You can move in space, but you can't go from now till tomorrow or from now till yesterday, you can't move in time. Time carries you along. Now time, some scientists tell us, comes from light. That's where it comes from, from light. And if you went faster than light, which you can't do, but if you could do, you'd actually be travelling back in time. That's why we can't, that's why nothing can go faster than light. Because if it did, it would go back in time. But there was a young lady called Bright who travelled much faster than light. She set out one day in a relative way and came back on the previous night. <laughs> now we're shaped, consciously or unconsciously, by the age into which we are born in the past of our family, nation and history. We could have been born 200 years ago. We had no electricity, no telephones, no newspapers, no TV, no anaesthetics, just think of that. No running water, no cure for many common diseases, life expectancy about 30. Think of that too. Hardly any travel. We need though to mark time, don't we? stages in our own life think of our own story so we mark time we celebrate birthdays wedding anniversaries 
New Year celebrations. Last week I was at my former church in Glasgow and they were celebrating their 75th anniversary. They'd asked me to come and take the service there. We have to mark time. If we don't, we don't know who we are and we lose our identity. To simply live for the present moment is illusory. Our history, our story, is woven into the fabric of the lives uh, that we meet day by day. We find our our identity by telling our story. The story that's ours alone to tell. We like to tell our story, don't we? We meet someone socially, first time, we get to know them by hearing their story, and we tell our story. You meet a lonely person, the lonely person probably simply wants to spend quite a time just telling you his or her own story. But our own personal stories can only be told as they intersect with other stories of other persons who've got their story to tell too. And their lives are accounts of how they have intersected with other lives that they have met. And so our lives are made up of all these intersections with other people that we've met. Our meeting and our interacting one another helps give our lives true purpose. But that is only true if there is an overarching story that covers all our stories and intersects with all our stories. So we find ourselves in a quest to find out what that overarching story is that gives meaning to all human life, not just my own or your own so that we can find our meaning and identity. So year by year, just before the year ends, we tell the story of a birth. The birth of Jesus, whose name means Saviour, the Christ, the Anointed One of God. But uniquely, that story is not told as a story of like someone writing an obituary in a newspaper, looking back from that person's death. But this story is told as a gospel, good news. It's told from the perspective of a life which ends not in death but in resurrection on this earth and will go on forever in a reunited heaven and earth. A resurrection which blew death apart, opening up to us all if we humbly look, an overwhelming hope of a new order, God's new creation. There are two Greek words in the New Testament for time. There's the word kairos, which means a moment of very significant time. A promise and a change and a challenge comes to our lives. That's kairos. And there is also chronos, which means simply the regular ticking, the rhythmic ticking of time as it goes on, day by day, week by week. Time ticks by and we are so often slaves of the clock and the calendar. That's chronos. In a lifetime, the average person in this prosperous Western world will spend six months waiting for a bus or a car at traffic lights, eight months opening junk mail, one year looking for misplaced objects, four years doing housework, five years waiting in a queue, and six years eating. Mm-hmm. Time goes, we say. Alas, that is not true. Time stays, we go. 
Yet we need it. Someone once said that time is nature's way of stopping everything happening at once. However, moments in this ticking time, moments of destiny, do come. The moment in the chronos is a significant time, the kairos. And so, to know that this time is a defining time is all important. And we can only know the defining times in our life if we know the purpose for which human life exists. And the birth of a baby in a family gives a kairos, a significant time to that family when all other things they might do in their time suddenly change. I was mentioning this morning in my little service at the university, for unto us a child is born, Isaiah says, as we read earlier in this service, that you can go to a neighbor's child, admire it and come home and no, it makes no difference to your life. For unto us a son is given, if that child is born as a son in your family, if he's part of your family, then it's going to change everything about your life. That's the Kairos. And God comes into our human family so that we humans might be part of his family, calling Jesus his father, our Father, who art in heaven. So there is in the story of the world a birth that intersects all our lives and calls us all to ponder our destiny. For this moment of the coming of the Son of God is the defining moment of time. For from it we measure all our dates, don't we? For that birth is the story which gives meaning to our lives, and why? because it's that story is the story of the appearing in time of the one who created time. It's, it's no less than the self-emptying of the divine love into the heart of human history, expressing in that self-giving love for which time and history were made. In this way, God chooses to stand where we stand. He's born as we are born, coming into our world with all its problems, and knowing us not just from the outside looking in, but knowing us from the inside looking out, even the inside of our lives as we go through death, God knows that from the inside. He came into our flesh. Now the New Testament celebrates that wonder and that mystery in a rich variety of ways. It's the meaning behind the simple story of the birth in that manger. The life of every sinner is given meaning by Christ's life because in him we find everlasting forgiveness. Think of all the billions of babies born into disadvantage in our world. Do their brief lives mean anything? From the perspective of eternity, yes they do. Think, think of the humble response of Mary, the mother of Jesus, the village girl, in and through whom God comes into this world. Then think of all the young women in the world today who are wondering and anticipating and perhaps fearing what is to become of them. Does their lives have any meaning? Well, yes, it does. Think of the worship of the shepherds 
and think of all the working men in the world who are forced to work long and difficult hours uncertain of their future do their lives have any meaning? well yes they do in Christ and think of the pilgrimage of the wise men think of all the world scientists religious leaders and philosophers who are trying to find the meaning of our human existence is there any answer to their search? well yes there is in Christ face to face with Christ I think of that famous atheist philosopher and mathematician last century Bertrand Russell I just want to quote to you a few of his words which I sometimes quote when I'm giving talks in other places I was giving a talk on his thinking in Shanghai earlier this summer let me let quote something from his introduction to Western philosophy this is what he says I'm just quoting a little bit of it remember he's an atheist almost all the questions he says of most interest and importance to human beings are such that science cannot answer the questions are is the world divided into mind and matter and if so what is mind and what is matter now I explain in other places why that's a fundamental and great mystery what is matter and what is mind but I won't go into that now has the universe any unity or purpose he asks is it evolving to some goal is there a way of living that is noble or are all ways of living merely futile is there a way of living that uh, if there is a way of living that is noble in what does it consist and how shall we attain to it to such questions no answer can be found in any laboratory only theology can answer these questions only theology the problem is Bertrand Russell didn't believe in theology because he didn't believe in God so he says that the most interesting and important questions facing the human race have no answer apart from God whom he didn't believe in long ago the wise men tried to find the meaning of life on earth was there any answer to their quest? yes there is what greater sign that God indeed made us for himself he made us for himself and what is the sign of that? a great sign of that is that he should come like one of us and so the truly human way of living is to live in the presence of Jesus with the power of God's grace poured into our hearts O holy child of Bethlehem descend to us we pray cast out our sin and enter in and be born in us today now the shepherds who came to Bethlehem no, found no obvious sign that this is the Lord there was just a manger with the animals perhaps and the, that's all they saw and that hidden glory of Bethlehem runs right through the story of Jesus we see him as the anonymous persons queuing up to be baptised by John in the River Jordan when he's about 30 years old. We see him healing the sick and then keeping it a secret or not publicising it. And we see in the end him abandoned by his disciples and alone on the cross with his anguished cry as he dies for the sins of the world and we see him recognised by Mary Magdalene only when he calls her by name the Apostle Paul says he emptied himself and made himself 
nothing. Love so amazing, so divine, is the heart of the Christian message. The heart of the Christian message is not that God tells us to be humble. The heart of the Christian message is that God is humble. And that's why we should be humble. It is God who is humble. He emptied himself and made himself nothing. And by that great meekness of God, all human distortions of power are challenged and judged. The birth of a virgin is a sign that in Jesus, God really has broken into our world and has come in person to redeem his people. The virgin birth is not merely a miracle of biology, but it's a new creation. And Mary's obedient response, let it be to me according to your will, gathers up all true human response to the call of God. And one day that glory will be revealed at the end of the age in all the, all the world. But here in our earthly life, through the eye of faith, opened by earnest and humble reflection, which ponders and sees and knows in Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. And then that love which came down at Christmas is indeed a love that demands no less than my life, my soul, and my all. Let us pray.